0: First Samuel chapter 3, page 227, 227, if you'd like to follow along in the uh, Bible in the Purach. This is God's word to us. Now, the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am. And he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, Here I am. And Eli said, What was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Well, this is a chapter that is about God breaking the silence between him and his people. God's word comes to Israel. That is sort of the, the macro level, big picture view of what's taking place in this chapter. God's word is coming to the nation, coming to Israel. But then as we uh, zoom in, we see that God's word comes to Israel as God's call comes to Samuel. And then in that call to Samuel, God's judgment comes to Eli. Let's consider those things. First, God's word coming to Israel. This section is detailing for us a major shift in the nation of Israel. And it starts with this sad comment at verse one. uh, The word of the Lord was rare in those days. Or if you have the King James, it says precious. That doesn't mean it was uh, cherished, It means that it was rare. It's precious and that it wasn't found often. Um, the word of the Lord was rare. That's how uh, the, the chapter begins. There's no frequent vision. But then we end in verse 1 of chapter 4, and the word of Samuel came to all of Israel. So in one chapter, we go from infrequent visions or communication from God to his people uh, to God raising up a prophet who will speak on his behalf to the entire nation. So this big transition takes place. Uh, the call of Samuel has a lot of similarities with other uh, prophets who are called in the Bible, like Jonah or Jeremiah or Isaiah, uh, God's voice coming to them and, and them kind of not being sure what to do with it at first. The difference with Samuel's is that his is the very first time that God calls a prophet into his service. He's the very first, uh, the very first official prophet in the nation. It's not that people hadn't prophesied before. Moses had prophesied even in the last chapter. An unnamed prophet came to Eli. So people spoke from God before, but there had not yet been established the, the line, or we could call it the office, of a prophet yet in the nation. Um, two passages in Acts prove that Samuel is the, the very first official prophet. One's a snippet from Peter's sermon, uh, Acts 3.24. He says, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel... And all those who came after him proclaimed these days. So they start with Samuel. Peter does when he talks about all of the prophets. And then in a sermon from Paul, chapter 13, verse 20, he says, God, after he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. So Samuel sort of has a dual function. He's the last judge and the first prophet. Um, We're shifting from that time of the judges where everybody did what was right in their own eyes to a time where God will raise up prophets and and his word will go out, and people will be directed in the way that they should go, in a, in a powerful way. God is speaking to the nation, and God is still speaking to us today. Still today, we're reaping the benefits of this prophetic ministry that is established in First Samuel chapter 3, all those years ago. And that's not because God is raising up new prophets still today, but because God sent the final prophet, the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who entirely embodied God's will, God's way, God's word. He sent us Jesus. Jesus is God's last or final word to us. And it's his last word, not in the sense that he hung up the phone on us after Jesus came. It's his last word in that after Jesus, there's nothing more that needs to be said. We have it all in him. We have it all in in Christ. The gospel is telling us of the last prophet, the greatest prophet. First Samuel 3 is about the, the first prophet who receives God's word. The gospels tell us about the last prophet who is God's word. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Hebrews 1 tells us that long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days in which we live, he has spoken to us by his son, In the life and ministry of Jesus, we have perfectly and entirely embodied God's will for us and for our salvation. What we have heard from Jesus and what we have heard about Jesus in the Bible is enough. It's sufficient. It's all we need. It's all we need. And moreover, even though God is not sending more prophets after he sent Jesus, we're told in Ephesians 4 that Jesus has sent pastors, To come what? And give new revelation? No, to talk more about him and what he's done. So that's all God speaking to us still. The question is, are we listening? The question is not, is God still speaking? The question is, are we listening? You know, just because we have a preponderance of biblical preaching and teaching today doesn't ensure that we'll hear from God. Hearing from God is just as natural as God speaking a supernatural, excuse me, just as supernatural. God speaking is a supernatural act. It takes a supernatural act to hear God speaking. That's why the Bible says that we need ears to hear. And the Apostle Peter tells us this. This is Second Peter one nineteen. This command to pay attention. It says you do well to pay attention to the scriptures, for they're like a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, we need the scriptures. We need to pay attention to God's voice. Otherwise, we're in the dark and we don't know how to, how to get around in life. We'll be confused. We'll be led astray. Are we listening? The, the tragedy is that it seems to me that the more Bibles we have, the, uh, the more churches that there are, the more apps and the more podcasts that there are to get the Bible into our heads and into our hearts, the less urgent we sense the need to receive God's word. So we can still be deaf to God. Maybe you're deaf to God today. Yeah, you're here, but are you listening to him? In Eli's day, God's word was precious. It was rare in the sense that God was not speaking regularly through the prophets. In our day, if we think God's word is rare, it's not because he's not speaking. It's because we're not listening. So, you know, I, I wonder... Do you care to hear God's voice? Do you recognize you're, you're hearing God's voice every time the Bible is opened up and it's read? Every, every time a, a preacher gets up and he's he's proclaiming God's words faithfully, you're hearing from God. Is, does that excite you? Do you care? Are you excited to come to church and to hear God's voice, to hear from him? Would Do you, do you recognize what your life would be if you didn't have God's voice? Could you, could you stand to not hear from him? Some of us, uh, those of us who are married, you know, if we're traveling, we we miss the the voice of our spouse. We call. We just want to hear them. Maybe we can't be with them, but we want to hear them. We have friends. We enjoy speaking with them, conversing with them. We like hearing from them. Is that how we feel about God and His Word? Would you Would you be able to stand not hearing from God? Would you be fine not being in church for weeks on end? Not opening up your Bible? There's a story, I think, that drives home this point really well of the the devotion that believers have to have just to hear from God uh, that I stumbled across last summer. It's a story about Lawrence Oswald, and um, he was a largely unsuccessful British actor, so unsuccessful I got his name wrong. It's Oswald Lawrence. Oswald Lawrence, there, that illustrates the point. Uh, he was a lifelong actor, but he never made it big. Um, nobody knew who he was or which of his names came first. Uh, but he did have one particular, uh, particularly famous role, although not many people knew that he was the one who filled it, and that was since the 1970s. This is in, in Britain, in London in particular. Since the 1970s, he was the voice Uh, On the subway system, the tube as they call it, that would declare what station uh, they had reached and would say, as the doors opened up, mind the gap. We would say, watch your step. That was his voice that came over uh, the subway system. And in 2012, the underground, uh, uh, the official underground uh, folks, phased out his voice in favor of an automated voice uh, that could be used uniformly across all of their system, and no one probably noticed, except for Lawrence's um, wife, Margaret. In fact, it was his widow. He had died in 2007, so this is five years later, in 2012, Um, and after her husband had died for years, she found great comfort every time she took a commute, she could hear from her husband, mind the gap. Uh, telling her it was time to get off at her home station. It was Embankment Station. That was the name of the stop. And she could hear his voice every time she would get off and go home. And so she was distraught over the decision to remove the voice, so she made an appeal to the powers that be. And they were so moved by her appeal and her story that they decided to, to reinstate uh, Lawrence's voice in one station only, the Embankment Station, her home station. And she told a reporter, she shared that she would often go down to the platform and just sit there. Sometimes she said for over an hour, just as every subway came in, she could hear him inside the subway saying, mind the gap. Welcome to Embankment Station, mind the gap. And she could sit there and just listen to, just hear the voice of her beloved. And shouldn't that mark the... The desire of believers to hear the voice of the lover of our souls speaking to us that we would have a desire to go and, and and to wherever his voice is going to be heard to get there even if it just means sitting and just saying lord speak for your servant is listening that's samuel's response isn't it to god's call on him god's word comes to Israel, but then secondly notice that God's call comes to Samuel. It's interesting how God's word comes to the whole nation. It's not in this really impressive way. There's not, you know, thunderclap or lightning strike. There's not you know smoke or earthquakes. It's something that we might expect from something as impressive as God showing up on the scene, but it happens in this really personal, intimate way, his voice coming in the middle of a night, a voice that is so tender that it can be mistaken for the voice of a father. And yet this is how God's word comes to the whole nation because this is how he establishes his prophet. God is doing something amazing even though it seems simple. He is establishing his mouthpiece for the entire nation. This is a unique call to be certain. This is unique. And yet I think there are some things that happen in this call that are universally true every time God calls somebody to himself. Uh, There's something of... Your story here, if you're a Christian, or I dare say there's something of what your story could be if you would be a Christian, found in 1 Samuel chapter 3. But how does God's word, how does his voice come to his people? How does his call come to his people? I think at least two things we could note. First, note that it's personal. It's personal. Three times in this chapter, God calls the young boy by his name, Samuel. If you look at verse 10, though, verse 10, it says the Lord came and stood calling as at other times Samuel, Samuel we're told he uses that double use of the name, that's an ancient convention that conveyed uh, care intimacy, also importance, you really need to pay attention to this Uh, think about Jesus uh, speaking to Paul on the road to Damascus right? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So It comes twice there, but yet we're told that that's how God spoke as at other times. The Lord came and stood calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. So I think we could deduce that he does this double use of the name in the the previous three calls. So there's some math that can be done to figure out how many times he uses the name, two times four. Somebody else can do that for us. Um, So he's, he's being personal here. He's being personal. God's not issuing just a generic one ad, you know, wanted. Pious prophet, you know, apply at this website and not knowing who it will be. Just, I just need somebody. Uh, nor is it sort of like throwing up the bat signal to some unknown helper. There's somebody out there. You know who you are. I don't know who you are. But but please come to the aid of Israel. No, it's personal. He knows who he's after. He's after Samuel. God's call to his people is Samuel. He calls us by Name. What a thought that our names are put on the lips of our, the maker of the universe. The, the, the Lord of all. The king of kings says our name. Our worthless name. There's a villain in a popular book series that was only to be called, He Who Must Not Be Named. Right? He's so villainous, so evil, so wicked, that just to verbalize his name, just to put those consonants and vowels together, was, was forbidden. And not because that summoned him or anything like that, but it made people think about his wickedness and his villainy and his, his evil. And, and so it would torment people to hear this awful name, so he's he who must not be named. We don't want see it because we don't, we don't want to say it because we don't want to think about how bad he is. Well, I have to, to be honest with you all, in, in our sin. In my sin, I am he who must not be named. I'm far more wicked, far more evil than the most terrifying villain that you can find in a children's story or in a horror movie. That's us by nature. You are he who or or she who must not be named. And yet Jesus says, no, I'll name you. I'll speak your name. I'm not embarrassed to call you by name. And isn't that because Jesus, when he speaks our name, he's not thinking about our sin. He's thinking about the dignity that we have being image bearers of God. He's thinking about all the good things that we can become if we come to him. He, he has good hope for us, and so he, he calls us by name. If you're a Christian today, it is because at some point in your life, God called you by your very name. And you heard it in your heart, and you awoke. That's what makes all the difference. Think about Mary at the tomb. She was forlorn at the death of her Savior and so distraught that as she looked at him, she didn't even think it was him. She assumed he's the gardener. Until what happens? Until he says, Mary. Until he says her name. And then the veil lifts. The shadows flee. She gets it. It changes her life. This is what God does for us in the gospel. Jesus says, the sheep hear my voice and I call my sheep by name and I lead them out. He leads us out of our sin and out of our misery and into salvation. God's call is personal. He calls you by name. He knows you. His call, secondly, though, is persistent. We see that in this chapter. Or maybe better, we should say it's patient. The word call appears 11 times in this chapter. We see that God is after his man. On four occasions, God awakens Samuel in the night to deliver him this new mission and ministry. Samuel is confused. He heads over to Eli's bedroom, thinking he's been summoned. Why doesn't he assume it's God? Verse 7 tells us, Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. We saw last time, if you remember, that Hophni and Phinehas did not yet know the Lord, and we said that that, meant, that didn't mean that they didn't know who he was. It meant that they, they didn't care about God. It has a different meaning here. It means, because it says the, the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him, it means he didn't realize he was in this special relationship With God, he's not used to receiving visions yet. He didn't know, oh, I'm I'm this prophet now. I'm at the head of the line of prophets. He's not accustomed to this. He would have been doing the work of a priest. Now he's supposed to transition to the work of a prophet. He's not ready for that. It's only after the third time that Eli gets it. And Eli says, "I, I think this is the Lord doing a work here. So he tells him to return and be ready to hear from God. Sure enough, God speaks again. A fourth time. God is persistent. He's patient with Samuel. He's, he's after him. It's the slogan of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police that they always get their man. I kind of highly doubt that. But I'm sure it's true of God. He always gets his man. He always gets his woman. There's nobody that God wants to call to himself that he hasn't been able to find. God's call keeps coming, keeps coming until he breaks down our walls of resistance, until he pierces the darkness of our hearts, and brings us to himself. God is is doing that persistent work right now. I am convinced that there is somebody here today that is here because God is saying, they still haven't heard my voice, and today I'm calling them again. Maybe that's you. Right now, God is being persistent with you. He's being patient with you. Get after you patient with you in your sin and your neglect of him and you're ghosting him patient In all the ways that you run from him even as he's gently saying as he does here samuel samuel He's not barking orders He's wooing you He's doing it again He's doing it again and today if you hear his voice Do not harden your hearts Why should we tarry when Jesus is pleading, pleading for you and for me? Why should we linger and heed not his mercies? Mercies for you and for me. Come home. Come home. You, you're weary. Come home. Earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling. Calling for you and for me to come home. He's patient with you. And sadly, there does come a time when we can still miss the call. Maybe you've missed a flight before, and they were calling your name over the intercom, and you were on the other side. And some of you are laughing now, so I know you have been in that situation. In the other side of the airport, or maybe you were sleeping or whatever, and you, you missed your boarding. It's, it's too late. Well, there's that startling reality in this chapter, too, Just as God's call comes to Samuel, it's through him that God's judgment comes to Eli or Eli's house more specifically. It's too late, in particular, for Hophni and Phinehas. That says, you know, they had their chance. There can be no atonement. So there does come a time when when, uh, we can miss that call that God is extending to us persistently and patiently. This is the very first message that Samuel is going to receive in his official ministry as prophet for the nation. To to declare God's judgment. This this had been pronounced already to Eli. Remember in the last chapter that anonymous prophet came. Uh, Samuel's job is just to confirm that. Verse 13, to, to say this is what's going to happen. I'm about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. That would be a hard message to deliver, wouldn't it? Especially if you think about the dynamics between Samuel and Eli. Think about it. Samuel wakes up. All of a sudden, in the middle of the night, he's a prophet. Okay? Uh, This is what I'm I'm doing now. What do you want me to say, Lord? I want you to go to the man who calls you his son. Twice he did it in this chapter. My son. Samuel doesn't have uh, really, you know, a mom and a dad anymore. Elkanah and Hannah, they've they've given him over to the Lord. Eli is the closest thing he has to a dad. Eli is the one he goes to in the middle of the night, right? When he's startled by a bad dream, he goes to his room. This is his dad. And God says, I want you to go to that man and tell him, my judgment is going to come upon him and his house. No wonder... Samuel drags his feet in the morning. Uh, He doesn't want to tell Eli this bad news, but eventually he does with Eli's prompting. And just in closing here, I think there's two things we learn. One is we need to address sin when we see it. We need to do that. You don't need to be a prophet to uh, call out sin in somebody's life. God's word has been given to us so that we know the right way to live. And if if you have a friend or a family member and you see they're living in sin, they're they're engaging in some pattern, some behavior that is inconsistent with with what the Bible says, we have a responsibility to come out and say it. That's what Samuel does. It's not inappropriate for young Samuel to speak to his master, Eli, as though he's being disrespectful because it's God's word. That has the authority here. Samuel does the right thing, but secondly, I want you to know that Eli does the right thing too. He does the right thing too because he is the one who who uh, elicits the the response or the, this this word from Samuel. Samuel doesn't want to tell him, and certainly Eli knows that, right? I'm sure in his countenance he can. He's looking at Samuel. And he's like, oh, he's got bad news. Something did not go well last night, and. It's rare, right? For, we've been in that situation for us to, like, voluntarily go and say to somebody, I can see you're really upset, maybe with me. Could you tell me what's going on? We avoid those kinds of conversations. Eli does the right thing. He says, you need to tell me what's going on. He even, it seems like he kind of utters almost like a curse on Samuel. He says, may God do to you even more if, if you don't. Probably there's a hand motion going on. May God do to you. If you don't tell me what's going on, I need to know. Eli does the right thing. In that he, he wants to find out, but then in the way he responds, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems best. I think this is a redemptive moment for Eli. Uh, it's this kind of response that makes all the difference for you and me and our salvation. What, how do we respond when God says you're a sinner and this is what sin deserves? How do we respond? Say you're unfair. Uh, you're, you're over-exaggerating things. Uh, you, you don't know me. You don't, you don't get me. Who are you to say that what I'm doing is wrong? H- how do we respond when sin is called out? Eli does the right thing, and I think it's a redemptive moment. I think he was a failure in his life and in his ministry, but he's a conqueror in Christ in death because he trusts in the justice of God. God's judgment comes on his whole house. The, 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 the priestly line is going to be ended. That is a temporal and a very real judgment. I'm not certain that God's everlasting punishment comes upon Eli. I think he recognizes that when God calls out sin, it's a gracious thing. I hope you recognize that. When God calls out sin in your life through his word, or maybe through a friend speaking his word into your life, that's a gracious thing. What if God never did that to us? What if we were living a, a, a lifestyle that damned us to hell and we were ignorant of it? But God speaks to us. He addresses us. He says, this is wrong. You need to change. That's, that's grace. But if we refuse that word, what hope do we have? This is how Charles Spurgeon puts it. He says, learn from Eli that we should be willing to know the very worst of our case. Why? Why, Spurgeon? Well, surely, he says, we do not wish to be left in a fool's paradise, pleased with the idea that we are rich and increased in goods and have need of nothing, when all the while we're naked, poor, and miserable. We desire to be informed as to our own condition. We would know even the frightful truth, the humbling truth, what would some would even call the degrading truth, if it indeed is truth. We wish to be degraded if to know the truth would make us feel degraded. This way he says, better in the abyss of a truth than on the summit of a lie. We wish to be in our own sight what we are in the sight of God. We don't want to be shams or hypocrites. We want to be true. And then he says, dear friend, for this reason, don't be angry with the minister. And I would add, or the elder, or the parent, or the friend, or the sibling, or the co-worker. When you go hear from him on the Lord's day and his text isn't a promise or a sweet bit of doctrine but a warning or an exhortation. So don't be mad at that person. He says, if the minister is the Lord's steward and deals out God's truth, quarrel not with him lest you be found contending with your maker. Take the portion, or I might say the potion. It may be the very thing you need if God has sent you a bitter potion, it will be better for you than the sweetest dainties that the smooth-tongued flatterer could prepare. Cry to God to search you and to make you know your true condition. God's word can do that. It will search you. It will make you know your true condition, which is sinner, and then offers the hope of a savior. That's what God's word can do. It, can, it reveals our situation and says it doesn't need to stay this way. It can be so much better than it is. And so if you live your life by the precepts in this book, if you live your life by the precepts in this book, you will live a forever life. You'll never be led astray. There's not a single one of God's words that fall to the ground. Did you notice that's what's said about Samuel's ministry at the end of, of chapter 3? In verse 19, Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground as a, as a true prophet, one whose words are equated with God's words, which they are in chapter 4, verse 1. It says the word of Samuel came to Israel. It's talking about the word of the Lord. A true prophet who speaks God's word, none of his words are wasted. None of them get left behind. None of them fall and collect dust. God's word will not fall. It will not fail. And the psalmist says the same truth in these words in Psalm 119. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens, like the North Star. And so, let's make it the compass by which we live. Let's pray. Father, your word is clear. It's good. It reveals our condition for what it truly is, and it offers the gospel hope that we really need. So would we follow after your word? As you speak to us, would we listen? Indeed, Lord, would we listen and hear your voice calling us by name over and over again, never giving up on us, never embarrassed with us or ashamed of us, but wanting to bring us into the fellowship of the triune God. You are so kind to us. We thank you. We ask that you would confirm Your word in our hearts this day. For Jesus' sake, amen.